0: How to Play, Episode 12, Reef Encounter. and welcome to How to Play. Today we are going to talk about Reef Encounter by Listener Request. Uh, those of you who haven't listened before, How to Play is your podcast source for full rules explanations of great games. This podcast is all about teaching and learning games. So if, you're, if you like the show, go check out our catalog. We have a lot of great games there now in the catalog. Again, my name is Ryan Stern. I'm coming to you from Western New York, this episode was recorded on February 16th. And if you hear me be a little extra cheery today, it's because my daughter was born just 10 days ago. Gwen was born. She's very healthy, and our family is very happy. Somehow I'm still managing time to put out this podcast for you. That's the sort of dedication I have for you here at How to Play. Reef Encounter was designed by Richard Breeze. It plays um, between two and four players quite well. Plays about 90 minutes when you first learn in the game, probably closer to two hours, around two hours. The structure of this show, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I start with a complexity rating, I'll do a short hook to tell you what the game is about. Then I'll get into the meat, which is really the gritty of the rules of, of what's going on in this game. Then we have the hamster, which is some beginning strategy to help you pull it all together. We usually end with some musings where I discuss whatever happens to be on my mind. Today we're going to talk, of course, about online gaming, most specifically turn-based online gaming. We'll talk about doing that. And also I'll talk about schemas, if you haven't heard about those, how those can help you comprehend learning board games, so stay tuned for that. Let's get to the complexity rating. I struggled with this one. Uh, it really can be very very hard to learn just because there are a lot of different parts and a lot of different things going on and not to mention that I would qualify this game as having the worst rule book I've ever read I read it several times and had absolutely no clue of what was going on. I I got some resources from the geek and, and still had a hard time learning it. it. just, It's a hard game to grasp and so hopefully I'm going to do my best here at How to Play To explain it in the most comprehensible way possible. If you have a a decent explanation, once you understand the game, it's not that complex of a game, but it is definitely a gamer's game. So we're going to call this a single black diamond. This game does remind me of Tigris and Euphrates quite a bit. A game we talked about earlier on how to play uh, for a few reasons. It's a tile laying game, and also it's kind of a thinky game. Um, you know, it's not really a boisterous, you know, stand on your chair and scream and yell. It's kind of a stare at the board and and furrow your brow and figure it out, which is you know a different kind of fun. And the strategy just takes a little while to understand exactly what's going on and how it all comes together, much like Tigris. This is a perfect game for how to play to cover because it, it's really a hard game to wrap your head around. And, and a good explanation will make the difference between comprehension and absolute bafflement. I think the rule book is so bad because it's a, a bottom up rule book. It just sort of lists the rules in the order of the actions that you can take without taking a step back first and give you really a decent idea of the big picture and what you're trying to do so that's what I'm gonna try to do. I'm gonna give you a top-down explanation meaning I'm gonna give you the big picture first and then I'm also gonna talk about specifically what some of the different components do before I get into the details of playing a turn because the options on a turn there's just numerous options and you can get lost in it without some guidance on what you're really trying to do And if if you've been listening to the show, this is really how I like to explain games, especially complex games. From trying to give you a big picture to getting you to that turn structure, and then finally filling it in with the details. And some of the details I, I won't even get into. I'll save those to the end. I call those the vegetables. And those vegetables, you know, if I'm teaching the game, I'll just explain those as those come up or perhaps later as we're playing the game. and So those will come right before the musing section at the very end of this episode. So let's get into the show. I hope for those of you who don't know this game, you find this an easy explanation to follow. For those of you who do know the game, I hope you find this a good method for teaching the game. As always, I really recommend while you're listening to this, I think it would be a lot more easier to understand if you have the whole game just set up right in front of you, or at least have the rule book in hand so you can kind of look at the components as I talk about them. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Reef Encounter. Well, that sounded like a vampire. That was supposed to sound like a Jamaican lobster. Let's try that again. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Reef Encounter, a deep-sea adventure of combating corals, man. All right, that was a little bit better. In this game, your major objective is to grow the biggest corals, meaning you're gonna play adjacent, matching colored tiles together. And you wanna have these colored corals be the strongest compared to the other colors by the end of the game. To play Reef Encounter, there's six components you need to know what they are and what they're used for. Polyp tiles, larva cubes, shrimps, parrotfish, algae cylinders, and coral strength tiles. I'm gonna tell you what each of those do, and that's really gonna help you understand the basic idea of this game. In this game, you're building corals on the board. How you build corals is by laying these square cardboard polyp tiles adjacent next to each other, orthogonally. And you wanna make these groups of tiles as large as you can. So tiles that are adjacent to each other, that are the same color, are called corals. The cardboard polyp tiles come in five colors, black, white, pink, orange, and yellow. And you're gonna to try to make a reef of a single color, say black, and then you're trying try to make that coral as large as you can. To add these tiles to the board to make corals, or to make a larger coral, then you need to use a larva cube of the matching color. Larva cubes are these small wooden cubes, and they come in the same colors as the tiles do. So if I wanna play black tiles, I'm gonna need to pay the cost which is a black algae cube. So I pay that black algae cube and now I can add black tiles to the board to start a new coral or say I already had a coral on the board and I can make it larger. Now you need to claim ownership of these corals. Otherwise there's just a group of tiles on the board and nobody knows whose it is. And so you do that with your shrimps. These are these cute little wooden shrimps. They have little eyeballs painted on them and they're in the four player colors of purple, green, red, and yellow. And you place one of these on your corals, and they do some different things. But mainly what they do is they say, hey, this reef is mine. Now after a few turns, when you feel that coral, that set of tiles is large enough, you'll want to feed it to your parrotfish. Now your parrotfish is really a cardboard container which you put tiles in, and it has a picture of a fish on it. You can only do this once a turn and four times the whole game. So you have to decide carefully when to do this. When you want to do it, you simply pick up all the tiles in that coral and the shrimp and some of those tiles are going to go into that fish. And that is good because the tiles in your fish are going to be what scores you points at the end of the game. And then remember I said you don't just need to have a lot of tiles, but you also need to have the strongest tiles. Well, what do I mean by a strong tile? Well, there's these 10 special tiles, they're larger size, and they're on a separate board called the Open Sea board. The open seaboard has these 10 tiles on them. I'm going to call them the coral strength tiles, because they tell you how strong one color coral is compared to another one. For example, look at one of the tiles, you might see two orange squares on top of one white square. And then there's a circle in the other corner. This tile simply means that orange corals at this point in the game is stronger than white corals. At the beginning of the game, each color has two corals that it's stronger than, and weaker than two other colors, but not for long. These strengths are going to change throughout the game. They can change by flipping these coral strength tiles over, and that reverses them. So if orange was stronger than white, and this tile ends up flipping, now of course white is stronger than orange. What's going to cause these changes? Algae cylinders! Algae cylinders are the cylindrical pieces, they're made out of wood, and they're in four different colors, red, green, blue, and purple. They're not related at all to the color of the shrimps. These cylinders have two functions. They can flip the strength tiles over to make some colors stronger than others, and they can be used to lock down one of those strength tiles so that it can no longer be flipped, so that, say for example, you can make it so that orange is now permanently stronger than white until the end of the game. So now that you know those different things, take a step back and think, what are you really trying to do in this game? Well, you want to use the wooden larva cubes to play polyp tiles to make a really large coral. So say you made an eight tile orange coral. Hooray, all right. Now you want to feed it to your parrotfish by then putting the tiles into that parrotfish container. Now you want to get the algae cylinders to flip over some of those coral strength tiles so that as many of them as possible have orange on the top and then you want to get more algae cylinders to lock those down so that they can't get flipped anymore. Now throughout the game you might try to go and grow some more different corals. At the end of the game you look at the polyp tiles that you ate in your parrot fish, and whoever has the ones that are worth the most points based on how strong they are, based on those coral strength tiles, will end up winning the game. So if you know what those six components are, you know a lot about how to play this game already. You need polyp tiles to build corals. Those are adjacent groups on the board. You need matching colored algae cubes in order to play those polyp tiles. You use those cute little shrimps to go on top of those groups to protect them and to claim them as yours. Eventually you're going to feed those groups to your fish, that's the container in front of you. On the deep seaboard there's those 10 coral strength tiles and they tell you which color is stronger than which other ones. And you're going to use algae cylinders, those are the wooden cylinders, to flip those tiles and to lock those tiles down. Got that? Great! You've got a good grip on what Reef Encounter is all about. Now let's get to how you play a turn. Part two, the meat, how to play the game. Okay, on your turn, there's actually nine different things you can do, and that can seem like way too much and it can be a little bit overwhelming. But I'm gonna tell you how to focus on your turn. Really generally, you're only gonna do one or two of those different things. So let's look at those first, so that you can really understand what you're gonna be doing on your turn. In a basic turn, you're very likely to do just one or two of these nine options. Let me show you some basic turns. Here's basic turn number one. You'll simply play more tiles on the board to build a bigger coral on the board using an algae cube and a few tiles. And then you might put a shrimp on that coral to say that it's yours. And then at the end of your turn, like you do at the end of every turn, you'll get to choose from one of five groups of tiles in an algae cube to help reload your supply. The deep seaboard has five different sections, each with a different colored algae cube and one to three tiles on it. And you get to pick up one of those groups to add to your stock each turn. So basically, that's a very basic turn. You're gonna place some tiles in a cube, put a shrimp on it, pick up some more tiles. And on some turns, you won't even have a very good tile play. You might want not want to use that cube just to play one or two tiles. So a very common turn is to do nothing but skip all those other actions and just choose from the groups of tiles and cube. And so you just reload your stock and say go. So those are very common turns, but now let's look at all of those options you have on your turn. So, there are really nine different options for the things you can do on your turn. Though the ones I already mentioned are the ones you'll take most often playing tiles, playing shrimps, and collecting more tiles in a cube. That's the only thing you're going to do every turn, is collect more tiles in a cube. This will keep your supply of tiles and cubes fresh and, and give you more options. Alright, so what are all the options on the turn? Well, first, if you want to eat one of your corals with your parrotfish, you have to do it at the beginning of your turn before you do anything else. You can only do this at max four times during the game, so you have to choose carefully when they are large enough and when it's the right time to eat. On most of the turns you're not going to do this. And then like I said, at the end you're always going to collect more tiles and a cube. But in between those things you have seven different things that you can do or not do in any order that you choose. The game provides you with a nice little player aid that has that, eat, eat with the parrotfish at the top, collect more tiles at the bottom, and the eight little things in the middle that show you all the other different things you can do on your turn, which is a handy little reference. So now let's talk about all those actions in more detail, starting with what you have to do at the beginning. Parrotfish eating. Les ponçons, les ponçons. If you choose to eat one of your corals, you have to decide which one you want to eat. You could only eat one you have to have a shrimp on it. It must be at least five tiles big. And here's the reason why. Because four of those tiles are just going to get removed from the game. Actually they're going to go back in the bag. And the other ones are going to go into your little scoring container. So if you have a coral six tiles big, you're really only going to get two tiles to score on that. So ideally you want seven, eight, or even nine. Just remember, if you're going to eat, you take all those tiles and Four of them go back into the bag, and the rest you get to keep for scoring. Where does the shrimp go that was on there? If this was the first coral that you've eaten, you take the shrimp and you put it on the deep seaboard. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes. If it was your second, third, or fourth, that shrimp can just go right into the parrotfish container. You're not allowed to use that anymore. And that also shows you why you're only allowed to eat four times, because you only have four of those shrimps. All right, so after you decide to eat, or decline the opportunity to eat, there's seven possible actions you can take, and you can mix these up in any order, and you're probably gonna wanna mix them around in any order. Let's talk about those seven actions. The first one is adding polyp tiles to the board. This is a major part of the game, making your corals bigger. Like I said, for example, Sebastian might wanna play one pink algae cube as the cost for playing pink tiles is the algae cube. And then there's a restriction for how many you can play. You can play up to four pink tiles on the board. You can lay it adjacent to a pink piece that's already on the board, or you could just start your own coral. Start a coral somewhere on a board that doesn't have any pink pieces. In order to make a coral, corals must be orthogonally adjacent. Diagonal does not count as touching. You cannot play in deep water squares. These are essentially holes in the board that you have to avoid. They're very dark and and pretty distinguished. There's also a space in the center of each board called an extra growth space. It might have a starfish on it to show that. And when you build adjacent to that extra growth space, you get a free bonus tile just out of the bag. So if you're laying pink, you laid adjacent to that starfish, you were the first one to do that, bing, you get your free little extra tile there. You are allowed to play next to other corals, but you cannot connect two corals of the same color that are both claimed by shrimp. So if I had a pink one over here with a shrimp and a flounder had a pink coral over here with a shrimp, we can't connect them because they're the same color and then we wouldn't know whose is whose. Now here's the fun part. You can play over other tiles when laying tiles, essentially consuming them and replacing them with your own. Mmm, delicious polyps. How do you do this? Well your coral must be stronger than the other color. Then you simply play over it and consume it. Yum! You take that tile and you get to put it in front of your screen. And this is a wonderful thing because consumed tiles that are taken by you and, and put there, they can be used for one of three excellent abilities. I'll get more into what those consumed tiles can do a little bit later. But let's talk about an example of that. Sebastian has a pink coral Flounder has a yellow coral right next to it. Sebastian plays uh, some more tiles and plays over Flounder's two yellow tiles. Sebastian gets those two yellow tiles and he gets to put them in front of them to use later in the game. This is a very important concept in the game. You have to be consuming tiles in this game to do well because of the abilities that consumed tiles give you. So you want to always be looking for opportunities to be able to eat other people's tiles or maybe even your own tiles because in a minute I'll be telling you of all the wonderful things you can do with those consumed tiles. And remember you keep those separate by keeping those in front of your screen to show which are consumed tiles and which are just regular ordinary tiles that you got from the deep seaboard. So that's placing polyp tiles. You use a matching colored cube to play up to four tiles from behind your screen. The second possible action is placing polyp tiles. It's listed twice, so to tell you that you can do it twice with two different colors. If you had a ton of tiles, I suppose you could do it with the same color. Um, you know, you could do pink with four and then pink with three more, but due to how the tiles come out that's pretty unlikely. But it, it's not too unlikely that someone would want to play some pink tiles and then maybe play some orange tiles. So on a turn you'll either lay zero, one, or two groups of tiles. The next possible action is to add one shrimp to the board. You can only do this once per turn. And you always want to protect corals that you're playing on so that nobody gets to just take those tiles for free. So the significance of this is on your first turn, if you want to lay tiles, you only want to lay one group of tiles. Say I just want to lay pink. I don't want to lay pink and orange because I can only lay one shrimp this turn. And if I play two groups of tiles, I'll only be able to claim one of them and then the next choker will come in and put his shrimp on there and just get some tiles for free. But shrimps they not only claim those corals for you they also help you protect those corals. The shrimps tell the players that that's yours and allows you to eat it. Also they protect some of the tiles from being able to be consumed. So remember our previous example Sebastian was coming in with his mean pink corals to eat flounder's yellows. Let's say the tile Sebastian was coming in to attack, flounder shrimp was sitting on it. That tile is protected as well as any tiles that are directly adjacent to that shrimp. So the shrimp can protect up to five tiles and can be very useful in defense from having someone come in and eat your tiles. So place correctly, the shrimps can really help you from getting your tiles eaten. So choose carefully where you place them. If you place your tiles well, you can set yourself up into, say, a corner so that the shrimp blocks you in and nobody can really get at you. And though this feature is very nice, you can only use one shrimp per coral that you have on the board. You can't put a second one on there just to help you protect more tiles. The next action is moving or removing shrimp. You move the shrimps around as much as you want. You can even put them on empty rocks in the middle of your turn if you're not quite sure where you want to put them. But by the end of your turn, they have to be on a coral or back in your supply. You can take them off the board, but remember, you probably don't want to do that because you can only add one to the board each turn. Though this might be a good opportunity to snag one or two pieces of abandoned polyp tiles that somebody left lying around, or to change your defensive position to make it harder for someone to eat your tiles. The next action is algae cylinders. Remember, getting algae cylinders flips and locks those coral strength tiles. Using this action is the key to winning the game. And to do it, you need energy. Energy in the form of a consumed tile. Here's how this action works. You spend one tile and you choose a color. Look at the coral strength tiles. They each have a colored circle. Or in the newer game, it's like a colored jellyfish. The jellyfish there tells you which tiles will flip over. Whichever color you choose, it's going to flip over two, three, or maybe even four or five tiles, changing the strengths of different colors relative to other colors. So there are the four algae cylinder colors, which of course are different than the five polyp tile colors. So say I choose the purple jellyfish and there are two tiles with purple jellyfish on them, those tiles will flip over, altering the strengths between those two particular corals. Remember, you want your colors of coral to be stronger for two reasons. One, if you're stronger, you can go consume other colors of tiles. And two, how strong your corals are tells you how many points your tiles are worth. The stronger the color, the more points. So say Sebastian is playing Reef Encounter, And he's growing orange corals on the board. And he thinks he wants to make those stronger. So he spends a consumed tile to use a red algae cylinder. And this causes two of the coral strength tiles to flip over. And one of those makes orange now stronger than white. So now he can take some of his orange tiles and use them to play over flounder's white tiles. Hee 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 haw haw haw. So that was just a really good example of why you would want to do those actions in a different order. A lot of times you would want to flip over some of the tiles to give you an opportunity to attack into someone else's tiles. Now remember a bit ago when I said that after you eat your first coral, that shrimp goes onto the open seaboard. And here's why you did that because by putting that shrimp there this signifies that you now since you ate your first coral have the ability to lock down coral strength tiles. How do you lock down tiles and why do you want to do that? Well you're going to burn a tile just like you would before and you choose the tile you want to lock down so that it will not change. You take that algae cylinder and you put it on top of the tile. All the other tiles with the same color would flip as normal. So say I choose a tile with a purple jellyfish on it. I take the purple cylindrical counter, put that on that tile. The other two, say, tiles would flip over. Once a coral strength tile has a cylinder on it, it is immune to flipping. Orange will now be stronger than white permanently for the rest of the game. And that is a very powerful thing to do. Because it's so powerful, you're only allowed to do it once per turn. You are allowed to get more than one algae cylinder per turn, but you're only allowed to lock down one. So you could, for example, flip some tiles over using an algae cylinder and then get another one to lock down one of the tiles. Okay, I'm sorry, but there are two other actions. Now I'd call these minor actions. You don't have to do them a whole lot, but they can be useful once in a while. You can always exchange a larva cube for a tile of the same color. And the other action is, you can exchange a consume tile for a larva cube of the same color. It must be a consumed tile from the front of your screen that you captured from another player. So now let's go back and talk a bit about those consume tiles. They are really important to doing well in this game. You need to have those tiles pretty much always on hand. So always be looking for ways to get more of them. They're useful for three purposes. Two I've talked about so far and one I've not. Let's go back over that. Consumed tiles can be used for Use 1. Trading them for larva cubes, which can be very useful if if you just can't get that cube to play tiles. Use number 2. And this may be the most important. Flipping those coral strength tiles or locking down coral strength tiles late in the game. Really late in the game, it gets to a point where things start accelerating and you're going to want to do this once every turn. And if you don't get involved in that, it can really hurt your score as everyone else is locking it down for colors that help them and all your colors go down the tubes. Use number three, playing extra tiles. I didn't mention this yet because I hadn't talked about consumed tiles, but when you lay, I said you can lay up to four from behind. Now you can also lay unlimited tiles from the front to give you extra tiles you can play in a single action. So in this way, you could play five, six, seven—who knows how many tiles—in a single action, which can be very valuable. So say, for example, I play—I want to play white tiles. I play my white larva cube. I grab four from behind my screen, and I have three in front of my screen. Now I can drop down seven in one action. So consume tiles end up being like extra superpowers and you wanna have at least one or two on hand at all times if you can. Let's recap what you can do on your turn. You start by eating a coral if you want to your fish. Les poissons, les poissons. Then you can do any combination of the following things in any order. You can do all of them or you can do none of them. You can play polyp tiles with a cube. You can play a second group of tiles with another cube. You can add one shrimp to the board. You can move shrimp as much as you want or remove them. You can flip or lock down the coral strength tiles. And then the two little minor actions, I call them. Trade a consumed tile for a matching larva cube. Or trade a larva cube for a matching polyp tile. You always finish your turn by taking one of the five restocking choices you choose which of those little packages on the board that you want. So the tiles are matched up randomly to the cubes, and you almost never get exactly what you want, but you'll just have to make the best choice of what's available there. The empty section from the restocking area gets refreshed, and the game continues with the next player. And that's pretty much everything you need to know about how to play the game. The game continues until one of the end conditions are met. There are two end conditions which almost always happen. And those are all of those 10 coral strength tiles are locked down by algae cylinders. That's going to trigger the end of the game. Or somebody has ate four corals. They've used up all their shrimps because they've taken four turns to eat corals. When that end condition has met, Each of the other player gets one sort of mini-turn. It's not really a turn. All they get to do is eat one of their their corals if they want to. Which they most likely will always want to if they have one out there to try to get some more points. But they have to do this last mini-turn at a penalty. You know how normally when you eat, you take away four tiles before you add them to your fish. On the last mini turn, you get penalized because you didn't end the game. You have to remove five of the tiles before you feed them to your fish. So who wins? How do we score this up? We'll empty out those polyp tiles that you ended up getting in your fish. Each of those tiles is going to be worth between one and five points. What we'll do is you'll check the value of each color. Each color starts with a value of one and gets one more point for each color it is stronger than. For example, let's say pink. Pink, at the end of this sample game, ended up being stronger than orange and white on the coral strength tiles. So pink starts with one. It was stronger than two colors. So in this case, at the end of the game, pink tiles would have a value of three. Let's say we had white, and white ended up being not stronger than any of the other colors. The white tiles then would only be worth one. So you'll announce those values. Maybe pink was three white was one black was two orange was four yellows were five everyone will add up how many points each tile is worth and that will be their score so if at the end of the game sebastian had three pink tiles three white tiles and one yellow tile each pink tile is worth three points so three times three is nine each white tile was worth one point three times one is three and each yellow tile was worth five points so one times five is five Add up all the values, 9 plus 3 plus 5, his final score for the game would be 17. So you can see in this way how you could have 4 or 5 more tiles than somebody else. But if all your tiles are junk, because you didn't flip or lock down any of the tiles, you very easily still lose the game. So, what's your goal? Your goal is to grow the biggest corals, feed them to your parrotfish, and then have those corals be the strongest by the end of the game and the person who manages to do that the best, will be the winner. Part three, the hamster. How do you win the game? All right, so when you're building corals, make sure that you protect them with shrimps the best you can, and place them strategically so that they're not vulnerable to attack. Let's say I'm playing orange. I'm gonna look and see, all right, Which colors can can eat orange? I don't want to start an orange coral right by yellow and white because both yellow and white are currently stronger than orange. Those are the sort of things you're you're going to consider. Also, what I'm going to tell you is going to sound a little bit surprising, but sometimes the best play on your turn is to simply do nothing but take more tiles and the cube. Because a lot of times it can be just a waste to burn a cube to play one or two tiles. Always be looking for ways to consume more tiles. You want to have those tiles consumed because they're going to give you a lot more options on your turn. Don't rule out the possibility of consuming tiles from one of your own corals. A possible strategy is feeding off yourself, having your corals eat each other back and forth and back and forth to get more consumed tiles one of the main reasons you need those consumed tiles is because you have to get involved in locking down those coral strength tiles if you don't enforce your will on which ones you want to lock down in what positions you're definitely going to lose the game so because of that you can't wait too long to eat your first coral because remember you're not allowed to lock down a tile until you've ate that first coral so you may want to you know three or four turns don't wait too long to eat that first coral so that you can start affecting those coral strength tiles next piece of advice for you don't let your big corals sit around for too long The bigger your corals get, the less protected they are. Uh, A five-tile coral, you can have protected totally by your shrimp. But the bigger the tile gets, the more spread out it is, and the more tiles that are vulnerable. The interesting thing about this game is, you have to let the coral go around the board. Everyone will have a chance to eat away at your coral before you get a chance to eat it. And that's always a little bit stressful. But what you certainly don't want to do is have a big coral And give your opponents multiple chances to nibble away at that coral. Otherwise, you'll simply be treading water. Once you make a coral of a sizable size, you'll want to just go ahead and eat it. Next, pay attention to the timing in this game and when the game is going to end. The end of this game can sneak up on people. So you're going to want to look at how many shrimps other people have left. And how many tiles are locked down. And how many turns... I mean, you can think, if everyone locked down a tile every turn, how many turns do you have left? It can happen that soon. And remember, you only can eat one coral per turn. So you want to be careful not to get caught having a bunch of corals uneaten at the end of the game. But you don't need four corals to win this game. You really only need two or three really good ones that are valued particularly high. will definitely do the trick for you. So that's my starting advice for you. Build those corals up big. Make sure you're looking for places to eat more tiles. Get involved in flipping and locking down tiles. And be aware of the timing of the game. Good luck and have fun. Part 4. Footnotes and Musings. Alright, so let's get to the footnotes. Uh, This is the time where I tell you all my vegetables, the little bitty rules that I skipped over for the sake of ease of explanation and just some additional footnotes. So the vegetables, when you're consuming tiles, in order to consume tiles, you must start with a coral at least two tiles big in order to consume another tile. So you have to have two tiles already on the board adjacent to each other. You can't just have one sitting there you can't just pop in the middle of a coral and consume it you need to start with a starting base of two corals and then you can start eating other tiles one of the minor actions like i said was trading a consumed tile for a larva cube when you do that this is sort of an errata rule you have to use that cube immediately that rule was added because people ended up abusing that action as a way to end the game. There are a few other end conditions that generally don't ever happen. The other end conditions are if there's nowhere to play a tile, if there's no more tiles left, or if there's no more larva cubes. And I guess people found a way to abuse that rule so that they would use a bunch of consumed tiles to clear out a bunch of the larva cubes to prematurely end the game, which is pretty stupid if you ask me but it ended up in this errata from the designer which is, if you trade a consumed tile for a larva cube you have to use that larva cube right away. Along the same sort of lines, when you get a algae cylinder you can never really get the algae cylinders and hold on to them. When you get the algae cylinder it goes directly onto that algae cylinder space, uh, the circle or it's going to go on top of the tile. So you can't just uh, buy one with a consumed tile and just sit on an algae cylinder behind your screen or anything like that. When you get an algae cylinder, it's used immediately, either as a lockdown or as a flip, in which case it's going to go into that circular space on the deep seaboard. I also realized that I think I've mixed around the terms open sea and deep sea. Uh, I hope I haven't confused you by that. I'm, I'm meaning the same area. It's that main player board. There's a lot of vocabulary in this, in this game, and I'm sure I probably called those cubes algae cubes once or twice as well somewhere in there so between polyp tiles and their algae cylinders not algae cubes and larva cubes so you gotta gotta keep all that straight polyp tiles algae cylinders and larva cubes not vocabulary we use every day some of the starting setup notes uh, there are individual boards and if you have three players, you use three of the boards, four players use four of the boards, and so on. There are different tile counts, and the tile, the starting tile counts are different based on what turn order you go in, and this is the way they even out the advantage of going first. So if you go first, you're going to end up with less tiles to start with. So check those from the rulebook to know what your starting tile count is. You also will get two larva cubes of your choice in the beginning. Also, of your starting tiles, one of those gets thrown into the parrotfish secretly. One of the major purposes of that is to really keep your score and the contents of your parrotfish more than um, completely public knowledge. If someone's really good at tracking, they can track exactly what's in your parrotfish. But this way, you put that one initial one in there, and they'll at least have no idea what that one is, so it will alter your score by just a couple of points. Another interesting note is if you look on the coral strength tile, there's that jellyfish that tells you which algae cylinder you need, um, say like the purple one. And right behind it, there's another little like baby jellyfish. Say there's a purple one and then there's like a little baby green one behind it. What the little baby one behind it is, is it tells you what color you need to reflip over that tile. So, and sometimes that information can be important because sometimes you might want to flip it, put some tiles on the board, reflip it, and put some more tiles on the board, which isn't out of the realm of possibility. Alright, and my least favorite vegetable here. This is my least favorite rule for this game, just because it it boggles my mind. I'm not sure quite how to explain it to you. Breaking in here about two and a half years later, the reason why, this is Ryan as of August 2012, the reason I had a hard time coming up with how to explain this was because I had the rule completely wrong. So if you are listening to this somewhat recently, congratulations, you get the correct rule. There are five areas there for you to choose from. Each one of them will have a larva cube and then one to three tiles to start the game, There's three tiles, three tiles, three tiles, two tiles, one tile. So someone takes a section, say they take a cube and three tiles, and then all you do is you you replace the larva cube, and then you add one tile to any section that does not have three tiles. So if one has three tiles, then it's already at max. If one has zero, it's going to get one more. If it has one, it's going to get one more. If it has two, it's going to get one more. So you're going to add a tile to any of the areas that do not have three tiles already. That's it. I think this was pretty poorly worded in the rules, which is why it took me two years to get the correct rule. But there you go. There are some nice little advanced rules. I haven't tried those yet, but I'm I'm interested to. And like one of the major changes the advanced rules make is Your parrot fish eats five of the tiles, so you have to wait a little bit longer. It lets the game, I think, develop a little bit more. I haven't tried those, but I'd be interested to. There's also an expansion called Reef Encounters of the Second Kind. So if you really love this game, you may want to check that out. And I'll just tell you one of the mistakes I made the first time I played this game. I was having a hard time learning it. One thing, you know, commonly people will play adjacent to those starting tiles that are on the board. Um, But just be aware, when you start laying tiles, you can just lay those tiles anywhere. You want to start building your own coral in the corner somewhere, you can go ahead and do that. What we were doing plain wrong was once those coral disappeared, we just thought you couldn't build any corals there anymore, which led for a very short and confusing game. So just be aware when you play tiles on the board, you can play them anywhere. You don't have to lay them adjacent to existing pieces on the board. So let's get into our musings. I hope you found that explanation useful. I really tried to explain it as top-down as I could. And we talked about top-down in game design, but it's also an important concept in game explaining because you really want to give the big picture. You want to give them schemas to help them comprehend and make connections more easily. What are schemas? Well, let me tell you a bit about schemas. Now if we're going to learn or teach a game, you may need to think about how do we learn? How do something like game rules go from your short-term memory to your long-term memory? The path to long-term memory is organizing that knowledge into chunks called schemas. Now schema theory says that humans learn by taking information they see or hear and attaching that knowledge to a chunk of knowledge they already know. These chunks are called schemas. In order to learn something, you have to have something to attach it to. If you don't, the information just won't make any sense. To illustrate this, let me read something, and I'd like you to try and comprehend it. In general, the cost or other basis is the cost of the property plus purchase commissions, improvements, and minus depreciation, amortization, and depletion. If you inherited the property or got it as a gift in a tax-free exchange, involuntary conversion, or wash sale of stock, you may not be able to use the actual cash cost as the basis. Now, that make any sense? Unless you're an expert on federal income tax, probably not. Now, if I read you something comparing Settlers of Catan expansions, it's likely you have quite a few Catan schemas as you are listening to The Dice Tower. Now, just because you have a schema on something doesn't mean it'll help you unless it's been activated. What do I mean? Well, let's look at another passage. Listen to this and try to comprehend it. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange things into different groups. Of course, one pile may be sufficient, depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to the lack of facilities, then that is the next step. Otherwise, you are pretty well set. It is important not to overdo things. That is, it is better to do too few things at once than too many. In the short run, this may not seem important, but complications can easily arise. A mistake can be expensive as well. At first, the whole procedure will seem complicated. Soon, however, it will just become another facet of life. Now, did that make any sense? Probably not. I'm going to magically now activate your schema. That paragraph was about doing laundry. (gasps) Poof! magic. Now listen again. The procedure is actually quite simple. First you arrange things into different groups. Of course one pile may be sufficient depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to lack of facilities that is the next step. Otherwise you're pretty well set. It is important not to overdo things. That is, it is better to do too few things at once than too many. In the short run this may not seem important, but complications can easily arise. A mistake can be expensive as well. At first, the whole procedure will seem complicated. Soon, however, it will just become another facet of life. Cool, huh? Now, how does this apply to games? Well, think about the game Puerto Rico. This game can be confusing to people who've never played a game like it, as there are all those roles to learn and the different building. Right away, I'd start teaching Puerto Rico by telling the players you're trying to score the most points to win the game. There are two ways to do that. Producing and then shipping goods, or getting money and then buying buildings. Bing! Your player now has a schema in which to learn the rest of the game. As you go over the roles and look at the different buildings, players will be able to attach that to the knowledge that they're either trying to make goods and then ship them, or get money and then build buildings. They have a very basic schema in which to learn the game. Or look at Agricola. If you try to teach Agricola, there are 30 different actions to teach. If you try to teach them basically at random, as they appear on the board, the game will be very hard to learn. But if you use a schema of something the players already have in their brains, like, let's bake bread. Here's how we bake bread. You need to get the seeds, plow the field, sow the field, Harvest the crops, build an oven, and bake the bread. This matches up with what players already have in their heads about how to bake bread. It will be a lot easier for them to remember as they learn all the different actions there are to do in the game. In fact, one of the best things about themes of games is they help players remember the rules. Because in the best games, the mechanics match the theme. I hope you'll think about organizing information into schemas the next time you try to learn or teach a game. And in this game... I give you the schema of your overall object. I also try to give you a schema of what some of these major components and what they're used for before getting into the nitty-gritty of the rules. You know, in most games I try to go through the structure of a turn and explain the game in context of the structure of the turn. But in thinking about this game, the turn is so complex and so variable that I think players are better served by having an overarching focus before they get lost in the infinite combinations and options of a turn. I think that's why the rule book completely mystified me. It started with explaining each of the actions without giving a lot of context for what you're trying to accomplish in the game. So I really tried to improve upon that in this explanation by providing schemas up front at the beginning. And the other thing I tried to do was tell you what you really need to focus on and what are the most important actions you need to know and how to do them providing emphasis on the main action of playing tiles, the importance of consuming tiles, and the crucial element of locking down tiles. So, I hope you'll continue to think about schemas if you explain this game or in your next game explanation. Let's talk briefly about online gaming and specifically turn based online gaming. I know the Dice Tower just had an episode where they talked a bit about this. It's pretty timely to talk about because there's a really good implementation of this game online. You know, I do quite a bit less online gaming than I used to once I first got into it um, I did BSW as it's called or Brett Spielvelt and I just I did it all the time it was sort of my way to wean off um, magic when I was playing that online Uh, that was quite a bit more expensive and Brett Spielvelt is free so that was sort of my compromise to wean myself out of that and I tried some of the uh, turn-based systems and in general I didn't really like them There's a lot of downside to turn-based games. I know for some people, they really like it. Some of the downsides of it are you have to wait a day or two between each turn. And a lot of times, you get to that game two days later, every time you sit back down at that computer, you have to think, all right, what was I trying to do here? And you can play three or four or five games at once, but then that makes it even worse, because you're confused between one game and another. And just having games that last a whole month um, especially some of these games that have way too much player interaction to do um, a play a turn and then send it off to someone else. But all that being said, there are a few games that work quite well on a turn-based system, and Reef Encounter is definitely one of them. Reef Encounter is playable on Spielbyweb, which is just spielbyweb.com. There's also other good turn-based gaming sites. I'd suggest you check out M- Web or Yucatan. And if you're interested in real-time gaming, definitely check out Brett Spielveld or maybe even uh, Game Table Online. But this game is really well suited to turn-based online games. The reason is because turns kind of take a while and sometimes I like to just sit there and really think it out and you know, It can be even better than in a face-to-face situation because the other three players really have nothing to do. Sometimes you just got to stare at the board and, and figure it out because there's just a myriad of options. And also it's good because it's not really critical that I see what my opponents do as they do it. There's no sort of interaction that I have during their turn. There's no auctions or trading or anything like that. You know, I can see what's important. Of what they did when it's my turn when it comes back to me I can just kind of see how the board changed a little bit and I can remember pretty easily what I was trying to do just by looking at the current game state so I really recommend you go to Spiel by Web and give this one a shot it's really easy if you haven't tried it before you just sign up for an account the rules are all there to help you there's a message board you just take your turn each time they send you an email when it's your turn it's really a lot of fun give it a shot and I really recommend this game Reef Encounter I think Tikal is actually another one I would recommend for pretty much the same reasons here as Reef Encounter one thing I'd warn you about the online gaming though is that you really actually need to make a choice with games such as this with a learning curve this steep you need to say Alright, I'm just going to play the heck out of this game online. And I'm not going to play it in real life. Or I'm going to play this game in real life and not play it at all online. Because the problem you can get into is if you play a game 20 or 30 times online and then you sit down with your friends who have only played Reef Encounter in real life once or twice, it's not going to be a very competitive game as maybe we've discussed in earlier episodes. Unless you perhaps have a group of players who are willing to do both, both play the game online and in real life. And how about uh, having a game with me? You know, I did a, a game to help warm up for this show, and actually it's still kind of at the midway point, but it helped me refresh the game in my mind and, and remember rules that I'd forgotten. But I would love to have a game with some of you listeners. So put a post there at the guild and and let's have a game. Speaking of the guild, join up. It's the cool thing to do. We are over three digits, 100 plus members. I'm so happy about that. Joining the guild, it's the easiest way you can support the show. You just go there to BoardGameGeek, search for guilds or look under Podcast guilds and click join. I just really appreciate it. It's a it's a way to say, Yeah, I I really like the show. We are starting to get a decent amount of discussion in there. You know, it's a good place to bring up anything you want to talk about with learning and teaching games. We've had some good topics there. And if you have any rule questions, you can feel free to post them there as well. Another note about you know something I'm gonna do to try to promote the show. I'm gonna create a geek list. Uh, just the how to play geek list and i'm going to list all the games of the episodes i've done so far just as a way to try to promote the show allow for more awareness of the show if you can help me out if you like the show just go to that geek list and give it a thumb to to show your support for the show i will place a link for that geek list on the guild i hope you'll subscribe on itunes if you haven't yet so you don't miss any more great moments if you haven't, go to rate the show on iTunes. You just need to give it a 1 to 5 rating. You don't have to do anything else. Just click how many stars you want to give it. If you'd like to, you could just write a sentence or two review as well. I have a PayPal donation button on the howtoplaypodcast.com website. You know, I've spent hundreds of dollars and countless hours on this show, and a few bucks is a great way to show your appreciation for the show. But that's going to about do it for this special Listener's Request edition of How to Play. I hope you enjoyed it. I would like to do another Listener's Request. That was a lot of fun. I might take some of the higher-rated games from that poll and maybe have sort of a runoff with those for a later episode. But I'll keep you posted. But for now, that will wrap This episode up. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast. seen in my life is when Ursula transformed King Triton into one of those seaweed type creatures. I remember seeing it as a small boy. Uh, I might have been, I don't know, 10 years old when when that fantastic piece of cinema came out, The Little Mermaid. And Ursula cast her magic spell upon the mighty, mighty King Triton. And he twirled and twisted and fell to the ground and became that sad, sad, miserable, green, weed-like creature. And it frightened me. I was, I was very scared. There are few things as decrepit and sad as sad, green, seaweed King Triton. Sometimes I can hardly get the image out of my young brain. Um, but that's okay. He, he was rescued. Hee 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 ha ha ha